Get ready for a journey into the heart of Bridgeport politics with In Absentia, a new podcast from Connecticut Public's investigative team, The Accountability Project. Learn about the city's past and present political dysfunction and the systems that enable it. Tune in wherever you get your podcasts. Funding provided by Joe Zimmel and Valerie Friedman. This is where we live from Connecticut Public Radio. I'm Catherine Shen. Connecticut joined every other New England state in logging the warmest January on record this year. Areas like Bridgeport are seeing record low seasonal snowfall while still logging more than five inches of rain, according to the National Weather Service. You may have already heard unusual bird calls or noticed your crocuses have cropped up early. Still, there have been two Arctic blasts between these unseasonable temperatures and another cooldown expected ahead. So how are these fluctuations affecting the local ecology? Today on Where We Live, we hear about a wide variety of critters, from bears to birds, plus an update from the state's main tick tracking center. But first, native trees are central to this story, and here to tell us about that is Dr. Susanna Cario. She's a forest ecologist with the Department of Environmental Science and Forestry at the Connecticut Agricultural Experiment Station. Thank you, Dr. Cario, for joining us today. Thank you for having me. Bats, bears, ticks, and trees. How has the unseasonable warmth this winter affected wildlife where you live? You can join the conversation, 888-720-9677. That's 888-720-WNPR, or find us on Facebook and Twitter at Where We Live. Uh, Susanna, I want to ask, why are trees such good indicators of our climate and biodiversity? So in regards of climate, I can think of at least two ways how trees can be used to observe changes in climate and variation in year-to-year weather, phenology and dendrochronology or dendroclimatology. So phenology is essentially the study of timing of seasonal phenomena. And like, for instance, every year we can witness the arrival of spring from budburst and flowering of our neighborhood trees. And depending on the spring temperature and amount of light, trees will start breaking dormancy. And typically the warmer it is, the earlier trees will start flowering. And by recording the dates of blooming, bud break, or appearance of fall color over several years, we produce a phenological record, which reflects the annual variation in the prevailing weather conditions. And, you know, phenology is an engaging activity that anyone can participate in by keeping an eye on the tree close to their home. Secondly, uh, dendrochronology studies tree growth rings as archives of the past climate. Uh, tree growth rings are they're visible as concentric rings with alternating layers of lighter and darker wood in, for instance, tree stumps. And each of these rings corresponds to one year of growth and contributes to the radial diameter growth of trees uh, through dendrochronology logical analysis and existing temperature and precipitation records, it's possible to reconstruct how temperature and precipitation has varied in the past and how it impacted tree growth. And these uh, dendroclimatological analyses indicate that the warming scene within the last century is unusual compared to the past. So trees are sort of witnessing the impacts of the warming climate. 
Well, trees not only can provide us information, but can you also speak to the role they play in any given ecosystem, considering they're what a lot of critters call home, and including the food that they rely on? Sure. So trees are considered to be foundation species of forests, which means that they define and structure the communities by creating locally stable conditions and provide resources for several other species. For instance, due to their large, large size, trees define the structure of forests and shape the microclimate of forests. Their biomass and chemical constitution contribute significantly to various ecosystem processes. So in short, without trees, there are really no forests. And especially in the northeastern U.S., oaks foster a diversity of organisms, including fungi, various insects, birds, and mammals. And especially acorns produced by oaks are an important source of nutrition for squirrels, turkeys, deer, and bears. And also, also the leaf litter of tree of oaks enriches the soils, um, the soil with nutrients and supports soil health. And regarding the connections of oaks and pollinators, well, oaks are wind pollinated, so they do not depend on insects for pollination. However, the abundant pollen produced by oaks offers nutrition for many wild bees, bees in spring. And oaks also attracts hundreds of insects and invertebrates that feed on their foliage. And these insects in turn attract lots of birds, reptiles, frogs, and mammals. And this develops a very dynamic food web within the forests. So we're definitely- These also offer nesting sites and nest holes for many species of birds, mammals, and reptiles. We're definitely going to come back to more uh, oak talk and uh, bird talk and insect talks, but just want to kind of ask you too, since we're we're sort of focusing on the fact that we have a much milder winter this time around, can you talk about how do warmer winters affect the seasonal growth cycles of trees and why is that important? Sure. So one one main way how warming winters impact trees is the premature breaking of dormancy and loss of new leaves and flowers to spring frost. Uh, in springs, a period of warm weather may trigger the trees to start forming flowers and leaves earlier than usual. However, if this period of unusually warm weather is followed by a cold snap or a deep freeze where temperatures plummet, then the newly formed leaves and flowers may be lost. And this would be a huge loss of energy for the tree because in the spring, the trees are heavily relying on the stored reserves of carbohydrates to produce leaves and flowers. And if the tree needs to use the precious carbohydrate reserves to form two sets of leaves and flowers, instead of only one set of leaves and flowers, the tree will then have very limited resources to endure other stressors, such as freezing of the root system, drought or attacks by pests and pathogens. And another problem posed by warming winters, as you mentioned, is the lack of snow cover, which may result into soil freezing. And especially rapid deep freezes can expose tree roots to frost damage, which will reduce the capacity of trees to uptake water and nutrients. And additionally, you know, if it's sunny and warm while the soil is frozen, uh, especially coniferous trees, which would like to, you know, start photosynthesizing with their needles, which are evergreen they can, you know, start photosynthesizing and they will start losing water. But since the soil water is frozen, the roots do not have access to water. And this can cause um, uh, scorching of, of the foliage in conifers. 
Well, you mentioned the the freezing of the roots, and these are typically natural for for these things to happen during a typical winter season. But what about sudden cold snaps amid the warmth? Um, Considering there was an Arctic blast in December, we had another one earlier this month and potentially another one happening soon. How does that impact the trees? Yeah, so that becomes problematic. Like if the kind of the soil has already started to thaw a little bit, and then the tree is kind of starting to prepare to uptake the water and starting the uh, transpirational flow. And then if suddenly the temperatures plummet and the soil water freezes, uh, this can also expose the root system to freezing and frost damage. And then this uh, damage to the root system will impact the capacity of the trees to uptake water and minerals during the growing season. And this can further expose the trees to uh, drought damage. I was going to say, speaking of a different kind of water problem, how does the recent drought um, in our region factor into what's happening with these trees? Yeah, so water is essential for the photosynthetic uh, capacity of the trees. So if the trees do not, so the trees need water and carbon dioxide to photosynthesize. And if the tree does not have access to sufficient levels of water, then the tree won't be able to photosynthesize. And this can result into carbon starvation, meaning that the trees are not able to replenish the reserves of carbohydrates, which are essential to support healthy tree growth and for the tree to form these um, various metabolites that are needed to uh, form cell walls and also uh, various chemicals that are needed to defend the tree against pathogen and insect attacks. So essentially droughts, which are becoming more common and more severe, uh, with climate change can be really damaging to tree health. Well, you meant mentioning uh, pathogens. I want to ask, you know, you're a forest ecologist as well as a forest pathologist. Uh, does the warm weather make the trees more vulnerable to pathogens? And what does that mean for the ecosystem? Well, um, if the winters are becoming more warm and the warm uh, periods of weather are more more of a rule than an exception, then that creates uh, very good conditions for pathogens and pests to flourish and survive. For instance, it's been shown that uh, certain bark beetles can survive better if the winter temperatures are milder. So then the populations of pests and pathogens increase, and this increases the risk of the trees um, getting uh, infested by these pests and exposes them to damage. So, you know, warm weather is bad for the trees, and it's it's very good for the pathogens. As a Californian, I'm not complaining about the warm weather, but I do feel a little <laughs> guilty about about it. And it's it's a lot more than just us enjoying the warmth, but just the impact is a lot greater than than we know. And and we spoke about oak and producing acorns earlier, so I want to bring that back real quick. Um, your colleagues at the Agricultural Experiment Station have studied oak trees in the state and found that there was actually a widespread crop failure this year. So can you touch on that real quick in terms of um, the recent drought actually was not a big reason why that's happening, but actually part of the oaks' cycle of building up energy reserves. Can you uh, share with us what's um, what is that? What is that like? Well, the mass production, which means that kind of how much seed crop is produced by the trees, it depends on the uh, current the conditions of the growing season. 
So for instance, um, if the production of acorns can be impacted by fluctuation in spring temperature, um, especially, you know, if, you know, the spring temperatures induce the production of flowers too early. And then if we have this kind of sudden freeze, then that can impact the um, production of acorns because there are no flowers. So then there will also won't be any acorns. Uh, also high wind and rainfall uh, during the flowering time can impact the pollen distribution and it can also damage the male flowers. Uh, additionally, droughts um, and no, during um, like unfavorable conditions, oaks tend to abort the acorn production. So then this can also have an impact on how many acorns are produced annually. You've been listening to Dr. Susanna Cario. She's a forest ecologist with the Department of Environmental Science and Forestry at the Connecticut Agricultural Experiment Station. Thank you so much for your time today. Thank you. Coming up, we'll hear from another colleague at the Experiment Station who's looking into tick trends where we live. Plus, Jenny Dixon joins us. She's the Wildlife Division Director for the Department of Energy and Environmental Protection. You can also join the conversation and tell us what you're seeing. 888-720-9677. That's 888-720-WNPR. Or send us a photo or two on Facebook and Twitter at Where We Live. From Connecticut Public Radio, I'm Catherine Shen. Support for this podcast comes from Hartford HealthCare. Elevating Health is funded by Hartford HealthCare. Loneliness can be a significant health risk to people of all ages. Dr. Laura Saunders, a psychologist from Hartford HealthCare's Institute of Living, talks about social isolation and why we need to connect in person. Loneliness actually is a pretty significant health risk for people that struggle with social isolation. It affects their blood pressure, it affects their immune system, it affects your willingness to get up and get out and can cause some not just emotional issues, but health problems as well. You're not alone. Dr. Saunders explains how important it is for us to look to others and get out of our comfort zone. I like to talk about social isolation as not just that individual's problem, but it's a community problem or it's a family problem. We need to connect with others. We can take space at times as well, but we need to step out of our comfort zone and do things to connect with other people. It's life-saving. For more information, go to ctpublic.org slash health. This is Where We Live from Connecticut Public Radio. I'm Catherine Shen. This hour, we're exploring how warm winters and sudden cold snaps affect wildlife where we live. What questions do you have? What have you observed? You can join the conversation, 888-720-9677. That's 888-720-WNPR. Or find us on Facebook and Twitter at Where We Live. Joining me now to talk about those effects is Jenny Dixon. She's the Wildlife Division Director for the Department of Energy and Environmental Protection. Thanks so much for joining us today, Jenny. Oh, it's nice to be here. Thank you. So broadly speaking, Jenny, what are your concerns when we're thinking about how the impact uh, warmer winters have on the local ecology and how this might be thrown out of whack? 
it depends a little bit on which group of wildlife species we're talking about. You know, certainly with what we were just hearing about in terms of the phenology of trees and trees, you know, budding early and having the flowers emerge early. That's a huge concern for migrating birds because a lot of birds time their migration based on when trees are going to start to break those buds and flower, the insects are going to start to get active on the trees. And so if the trees break bud early, start to flower early, that insect activity happens early and the birds don't migrate until later, they miss a really important food supply at a time when they desperately need it because they're, in many cases, their migration journeys are incredibly long, sometimes from you know Southern South America back here to the Northeast. And they really need every bit of energy they can get. So if they arrive back and they've sort of missed that window of available food, it can be really problematic for them to be able to get enough energy to continue to survive. So we have a question from Adam on Twitter who asked, what are some anticipated common wildlife behaviors given that this unseasonable warrant follows a record drought? Can you answer that, Jenny? You know, it's really interesting. One of the things that we've seen for a lot of species has been just they're staying in Connecticut longer than they normally would for this time of year. For example, we've had a lot of reports of people seeing species like great blue herons fishing our inland lakes and ponds because the water's still open. So normally those species would have either shifted to the coast or shifted considerably further south by this time of year. But because there's been so much open water and so much easy access to food, they're able to stay here a little bit longer. You know, in terms of the drought impact on wildlife, certainly one of the challenges has been, and we touched on this a little bit earlier, the reduction in acorn production in certain areas of the state this past year. A lot of animals rely on acorns to sort of put on extra weight for hibernation or to store acorns for food during the winter months. If there are fewer acorns available to do that, that means that they have less opportunity to either store that food or pack on some extra weight to successfully hibernate. So we see animals shifting to other types of food sources or spending a lot more time looking for available food when we've had sort of droughts combined with acorn crop issues. We're also going to take a caller from Andrew, who's at New Haven. Andrew, you're on the line. Hi there. Thank you uh, for taking the call. So I moved here from Milwaukee in June. And before I left, I looked up um, like the average snowfall and the climate. And since I've lived here, I haven't seen many rivers freeze over and much snowfall accumulation. So I was wondering the impact um, of not having kind of frozen rivers and snowfall instead of more rain. Well, thank you so much for that call and question, Andrew. I want to build on that real quick for Jenny. Uh, we know areas like Bridgeport are seeing you know, record low seasonal snowfall while still logging more than five inches of rain. And this is according to the National Weather Service. Can you talk to us about snowpack? You know, why is this so critical year in and year out? It depends a little bit, again, on what species you are. You know, For some of the species that are actively hunting smaller prey items, so things like a bobcat or a coyote that are looking for small mammals, having less snowpack can actually sometimes be good because it means easier access to prey. It makes their movements a little bit easier. They don't have to worry about breaking through large snowpack and things like that. That can also be true of white-tailed deer. 
But for the species that have to watch out for those predators, it makes life a lot more challenging because they don't have the protection of the snowpack. They can't sort of hide from those predators and exist sort of beneath the surface. So it does make it challenging for some species. A lot of species also settle into hibernation a lot more effectively when they've got that insulating snow cover. And when we don't have it, that's when you see some species that respond more quickly to those changes in temperature. So that's why it's not unusual occasionally when we've had weather patterns like this for a male bear to wake up and walk around for a little while looking for some food before he goes back to den again. So those kinds of things do happen as we see less snow and warmer temperatures. The animals just sense those temperature changes a lot more quickly than they would if they're blanketed by snow. So we've been talking a lot about how it impacts animals. Um, Andrew's question also relates to plants. Can you talk about how that impacts the, the plant life around the area? Certainly. You know, if we're, if we're having less snowpack, that means that sometimes, and we touched on this a little bit with trees, but it's true for a lot of other species, you know, they may start to emerge early. They may start to bloom and open early. You know, things like skunk cabbage start to peak up pretty early when we have warm weather periods like this. So when they don't have that ice cover and that snowpack in the wetland areas, you start to see some of those plants begin to emerge. And that can be problematic for the species that rely on them as a food source a little bit later on in the season. And um, we can't really talk about these kinds of differences and changes in, in, in the season without mentioning birds. What trends have you observed around the birds' migratory patterns? It's been really interesting because a lot of the species that would normally head further south for the winter are still here in Connecticut and they're still active in certain areas. You know, species like bluebirds, which do stay here during the winter, but shift to places where the temperatures are a little bit more hospitable. So usually they'll pick, you know, areas with some river valleys and a lot of brushy habitat so they can better survive the cold temperatures. They've been pretty active statewide, which is unusual for them, but they've got ready access to food and they don't have those really cold temperatures to contend with. For a lot of other species that we would normally see come down from further north to spend the winter in Connecticut, because surprisingly, Connecticut is actually a winter destination for many birds of prey, things like owls and, and a lot of eagles. We haven't seen that shift in the same numbers that we typically do. So a lot of those species are still finding really good foraging areas further to their north. They're still finding open water and they're not having that same need to shift down into Connecticut like they normally would this time of year. So the normal influx we would see of species like snowy owl or bald eagle, we're not seeing in some of the numbers that we typically do over the winter because they're still being successful in states to our north. So we also spoke with Tom Anderson, who's the Director of Communications and Community Outreach at the Connecticut Audubon Society, and asked him about whether slow-to-migrate birds in the area were safe during these cold snaps. He clarified that unless the cold weather was particularly prolonged and threatened their access to food, for example, a long ice storm, birds could weather another sudden freeze. And he also did speak on other factors of concern. Let's take a quick listen. There are much, much bigger concerns about climate change uh, and migration. Um, one of the big ones is that if insects 
you know, I, I mentioned before that the birds that go further south time their arrival in the north for when insects hatch out. And if that timing changes because insects start to hatch out earlier, then they'll be gone when the birds, you know, the birds won't know that. They'll be arriving at their usual time and they could be gone by the time the birds get here, which would be, you know, which would mean a lack of food for the, for the adults and as they try to raise their nestlings. So Tom also spoke to how the compositions of our forests are also changing. Jenny, can you respond to Tom's observations and do you have any concerns around the changes that you're observing yourself around the migratory patterns? He's absolutely right. You know, for the for the short-term issues with birds that have lingered here a little bit later than they should, yeah, they're going to be able to, if we if we have a short cold snap, they're going to be able to find sufficient cover. They're still going to have access to food. But he's right. If we were to get a major ice storm like we've sometimes had, that makes it very difficult for some of those more southerly species to be able to successfully survive. Because not only are they battling colder temperatures, but they don't have ready access to those natural foods that they're relying on. So, you know, the berries are covered in ice. The seeds are hard to get at that can make it challenging. But if it's just a few days of cold or even a, you know, a week long cold snap without that coating of ice, most of the time they're gonna do just fine. I think the serious concern is what he touched on in terms of the timing issue we talked about a little bit with migration. If species are coming back from that migratory period and they miss that window of when their food is available, that's a huge problem. And that's definitely a concern. It's something that we've been watching for quite a while to, you know, just try and figure out how that's going to impact species and whether ultimately we're going to start to see some corresponding adjustments in those migratory periods to respond to what we're seeing as a result of climate change. So we've been talking about potential lack of access to food and also coming back earlier than than expected. What about when birds are starting their spring calls now much earlier than than usual and other related examples? It's going to depend a little bit again on the species. You know, I've certainly heard chickadees doing a lot of their spring calls in the last week or so. The warm weather has definitely got them interested in the idea that it's close to nesting time. So you may see species like that that start to nest a little bit earlier than usual. Certainly some of the larger birds like great horned owls, bald eagles, they're going to start to nest earlier. So, you know, many of those birds have already started to form nesting territories and set up their nests. For some of the smaller birds that nest early, they are at risk of that sudden cold snap. You know, if they've, if they've got a nest and they're incubating eggs, we get a sudden cold snap. Not only do they have to try and keep those eggs warm in the colder temperatures, but they've also got to find access to food so that they can continue to have enough metabolic energy to keep those eggs warm and continue the incubation. So it can become very tricky if species end up nesting earlier than they normally would. I know we've been talking about a milder weather, but also for folks who wants to help those birds during ice storms, Tom Anderson with the Connecticut Audubon Society have suggested that if you want to help these birds, you can leave out a feeder. And if you have it, certain temperature controlled waters as well. Uh, Jenny, do you have any advice that you can give people who want to protect these birds? Those are both good suggestions. You know, I think a couple of the things that are 
extra important when you're talking about trying to give them that little energy boost. Not all bird seed is created equal. So, you know, some of the bird seed that has higher nutritional content, for example, black oil sunflower seed or suet cakes can be incredibly helpful during those periods when a lot of birds are struggling because of an unusual weather pattern that we've had. And we've talked about trees um, being vulnerable to pathogens earlier. Are birds any more vulnerable to pathogens, for example? One of the things that can happen when we have unusual weather patterns can sometimes tie back to bird feeders. You know, if, if the seed in bird feeders gets wet, that can create conditions where mold will spawn different illnesses that impact birds and can be deadly to them in some cases. So one of the things we always encourage people when they're feeding birds during the winter is to make sure that you're practicing good feeder hygiene. So you're cleaning your feeders periodically. You're making sure that you rake up spilled seed or spilled seed shells from under your feeders because those are the kinds of things that can pretty quickly spread disease. And so uh, related to, to what we've just been talking about, currently the CDC has around 45 cases of avian flu or H5N1 logged into wild birds in Connecticut. What are you seeing and how, how does, that, does that have an impact on the local ecology? It can, but it depends on the level of infection that we see. With our waterfowl populations, it's not unusual to see some level of avian flu positivity just naturally occurring. When that increases or becomes much more severe because of waterfowl concentration patterns, which can happen sometimes during the winter months, it can cause that to spread much more quickly. If waterfowl are in places where they're coming into contact with other bird species, that can spread it to other species, you know, whether it's chickens or other forms of domestic bird flocks. And that can represent a real significant issue and concern for agricultural operations. So it is something that we routinely monitor for. We have biologists who've been working on, you know, tracking levels of avian influenza for decades at this point. So it's something we're kind of always watching for and always vigilant about. We, we have had some cases of avian influenza in the state in other species, particularly in some raptor species. Well, you mentioned coastal birds earlier. You know, when it comes to coastal wildlife, are, is there anything unique in terms of how warmer winters affect them? You know, I think the big thing is it gives them a lot more access to food and it does make things a little bit easier on them. They have a lot more opportunity to be able to successfully feed. They're not faced with as many challenges, both from both from weather and from food access. So in many cases, having mild winters can help some of those coastal birds. It may also mean that some of the coastal species that we normally see shift further south don't do so. So it gives sometimes a great opportunity for bird watchers to be able to see some species that they don't get many chances to see this time of year. So it can be, you know, sort of a, a blessing and a curse in many ways. It gives you a great opportunity for some really good wildlife viewing. Well, our, our caller, Andrew, from New Haven earlier was also getting at how bodies of water that routinely freeze over may not be freezing over this winter. Is that an issue? You know, it's 
it can be more of an issue for other species. So sometimes that ha can have negative impacts on reptiles and amphibians. It can sort of change the thermodynamics of the water bodies that may impact fish to some degrees. But for a lot of the bird species, that can actually be advantageous, particularly if they're birds like bald eagles that rely largely on fish for food. It means that there's a lot easier access to fish. I've also seen a number of waterfowl species, different kinds of ducks and mergansers and things like that, that are making really good use of some of our inland lakes and ponds where they wouldn't normally have access to it this time of year. So, you know, certainly some of the larger water bodies I've gone past lately have been hot spots for birding activity because it's giving people a really great opportunity to see some of the species they wouldn't be seeing this time of year. We have a, a quick programming note here that Connecticut Public's documentary Climate Change Along Connecticut's Coast aired this week. You can check that out at ctpublic.org slash cutline. Well, it's nice to hear that there is some positivity coming out of all these sort of unpredictable weather patterns. But we have to talk about also, you know, how do these temperatures uh, impact some hibernating species? You know, it certainly can be a challenge for the true hibernators if they're not able to sort of have that temperature stability. They can sometimes get wrong environmental cues, which could cause them to wake up earlier than they should and perhaps, you know, initially come out of hibernation when there isn't an available food supply. Sometimes we see that with big brown bats, for example, you know, if they've picked a spot to hibernate that may be a little bit less than ideal and perhaps not as stable temperature wise as they normally should. When we get these fluctuations in temperature or these really warm days, it can cause them to begin to wake up. They may wake up and fly around a little bit. They're going to come out, they're going to use up some of their stored fat reserves, but they're not going to find any of the insect food that they normally would rely on. And that's going to mean that they've depleted their energetic reserves when they have to go back into hibernation again and wait until it's really spring. So it can be challenging for some species that do that. You know, I think the, I think the bird, I think the species like bears that are, you know, not really true hibernators are probably a little bit, it, for them, it's a little bit easier to adapt to some of those changing temperatures. For the female bears, you know, they're going to stay in their dens because they're giving birth and raising young. It's it's a very different drive biologically for them to stay denned. But certainly with the male bears, they're going to wake up when they get 50 and 60 degree days and they may move around a little bit. You also told our uh, Connecticut public reporter, Michaela Savid, that seasonal changes don't really affect bear hibernation, which is kind of a little bit of what you were just uh, touching on just now. Do you mind just going into a bit more detail about that and talk about how that impacts um, everyone else, really? Sure. You know, a lot of species have to hibernate just because of other things that they're doing biologically. Many species when they hibernate are, you know, getting ready to emerge and give birth in the spring or give birth during hibernation and are caring for young. So for those species, hibernation is really hardwired to what they do for their part of their life history. Temperature changes are not going to affect that too much because there are other drivers there 
for them that sort of require them to have that downtime, that period of sleep and, you know, sort of rejuvenation. For other species, you know, it's it's going to vary a little bit. You know, true hibernators like chipmunks and groundhogs, they're going to go to sleep. They're going to stay asleep in most cases because the things that they rely on for food are not available during the winter months. And so for them, it's about waiting until they've got available food to emerge. And in many cases, that's not just temperature dependent. It can also be photo period dependent. So there are a lot of other environmental cues that can play into hibernation, depending on what species you are. And continuing on bears, we also just heard from a forest ecologist with the Connecticut Agricultural Experiment Station about how oak or acorn crop failure has a domino effect on the local ecology. Can you talk on that a little bit? Absolutely. You know, that is certainly an important food source for bears as they're preparing for hibernation. Acorns are calorie dense foods, so they can put on a lot of weight by eating a lot of acorns. If they don't have that as an available food source going into the fall and getting ready for hibernation, they've got to turn to trying to find food in other places. In many cases, they're successful in doing that naturally, but it also means that they're going to be incredibly active trying to find food wherever they can. And that's when we can sometimes have issues with them looking for human-associated foods, you know, hitting garbage cans that are put out before collection day or taking advantage of that bird feeder that we might have put up a little earlier than we should have. Those kinds of things are problematic because then that also starts to make the bears think that our homes and our yards are places where they can look for an easy meal, look for those quick, high-calorie rewards, and it teaches them really bad behavior. So, you know, it's a, it's a, it can trigger bad behaviors just because that drive to get enough calories and get enough food before winter gets here is so strong for those species. So when a lot of their natural food has a crop failure or something like that, it does mean they're going to be looking for everything they can possibly find to to put those calories on. Well, I'm really glad that you mentioned that because you practically answered our next question, but I still have to ask, you know, another species that is being impacted by this is us humans. And um, I think Deep reported nearly 70 home entries by bears in 2022 and 2020. That number was actually closer to 40. And now we're here to the point where we have two legislative bills that are actually being pushed into the session um, to address this concern. One is focused on a wildlife feeding ban and a grant program, while the other bill is authorizing a black bear hunting lottery in northwestern Connecticut. And I know you kind of mentioned this a little bit before, but are there other attributions to this sort of newfound comfort in suburbs? Are people just out less or like you mentioned, we're putting stuff out a lot earlier. You know, what are your thoughts, Jenny? I think a lot of it has to do with all of us needing to be a little bit more bear aware and understanding that some of the things that we may not really think about very much, some of the routine things that we do every day can actually teach bears bad things. So, you know, I mentioned, I mentioned trash collection, you know, nobody wants to have to get up at six o'clock in the morning to make sure their garbage goes out to the curb. But if you put it out the night before, it's amazing how quickly the bears will learn to key in on what neighborhoods have trash collection on what days 
and will start to make the rounds and they start to include that as part of their regular home range movements. So, you know, while it's an inconvenience to us, if we can get up that little bit earlier in the morning to put our trash out on collection day, what that does is it keeps those bears from learning that bad behavior. You know, if we, if we forget to bring in our feeders when we start seeing bear activity in our neighborhood and they get rewarded by getting that really protein rich black oil seed that we might've put out for the bears or a snack from a suet cake. Well, we've just, again, reinforced that people are a good way to get a really tasty treat. So we have to be a little bit extra vigilant about what we do so that we don't train them to do bad things. And, you know, it's, I think it's hard because it's things that we don't always think about. It's things that can be routine. We get busy, we get rushed. We might forget about them, but our bear population is growing pretty steadily. We've had sightings of bears in every town in the state. So it's not like it's just a problem for one part of the state, not for the other. It's something anybody can see anywhere in the state. And we just have to sort of start recognizing that Connecticut's bear country and we need to try and do a better job of learning to live with them and not teach them to do bad things. So basically, you're telling me that I need to be a better morning person and bring out the trash bins the, the morning of and not the night. I get it. I got that. All right. You've been hearing yes, from <laughs> you've been hearing from Jenny Dixon. She's a wildlife division director for the Department of Energy and Environmental Protection, and she'll be staying with us. What are your questions about warmer winters and what that means for the wildlife where you live? You can also join the conversation 888-720-9677 or send us some pictures on Facebook and Twitter at where we live. This is where we live from Connecticut Public Radio. I'm Catherine Shen. Are your crocuses blooming early? With unseasonable warmth and the occasional cold snap, what unusual animal patterns have you observed where you live? You can join the conversation, 888-720-9677. That's 888-720-WNPR. Or find us on Facebook and Twitter at Where We Live. Here to answer your questions is Jenny Dixon. She's the Wildlife Division Director for the Department of Energy and Environmental Protection. Uh, Jenny, we have been talking about species who are here, but what about some invasive species of concern that are thriving right now? That is certainly a huge challenge and something that I think we're seeing the impacts of on a regular basis. You know, one of the species that comes to mind that has definitely benefited from warmer winters and open water has been species like the red-eared slider. You know, that was the turtle that I think many species, many people probably remembered having as a pet when they were growing up, very common in the pet trade, but it's actually a much more southern species. As people have kept them as pets and then decided that they were no longer wanted pets and released them into the wild, they've been able to establish breeding populations in Connecticut. And unfortunately, they are very good at outcompeting a number of our native species for habitat and space. And it's having a native, it's having a negative impact on some of our native species like painted turtles and, you know, musk turtles that are common to a lot of the local ponds and wet areas that we have in our neighborhoods. 
So that's one species that has really thrived as temperature has changed. You know, 20 years ago when we had a lot more ice cover, a lot colder winters, they typically would not survive the winter if they were released. Now they're doing a much better job of that and it's certainly creating some challenges for us. Some other things that I think we don't think about a lot in terms of insect pests are things like mosquitoes. You know, we are seeing a lot of different mosquito species that are successfully overwintering in Connecticut, non-native invasive species that can now survive here because of our winter climate. Again, something that would normally have probably died off with the cold winters that we have. And that can be problematic for a number of infectious diseases that do impact both wildlife and humans. So it depends on whether you're talking about small things, big things, but certainly it has given an opportunity for a lot of invasive species to get a little bit more of a foothold. We also checked in with Dr. Gudars Molai, who is the director of the Tick and Tick-Borne Diseases Surveillance Program at the Agricultural Experiment Station, who spoke about the severe effects uh, growing tick populations have on wildlife and livestock while the warm weather continues. The range of hosts and the pathogens ticks can transmit to them is growing. Even if we have another snap cold uh, in, within the next few weeks, it's going to be uh, too late uh, for having any impact on tick populations because the, the main point is that ticks do not hibernate the uh, particular, the kind of tick that I'm talking, that's the most important tick, black-legged ticks. I, I just want to remind our residents and throughout the Northeast, they have to realize that the uh, tick problem has become a major issue, unlike in the past. I know that those of us who live in the Northeastern United States, some of us might have become desensitized and we no longer care, but the era that we no longer cared about some of these ticks is, is long gone. We are dealing with, with up to 20 tick-borne uh, pathogens and several tick species that are transmitting these diseases. Therefore, uh, we cannot take chances. We have to uh, learn how to live uh, with these uh, different tick species and tick-borne pathogens, and the key is to protect ourselves. We, we are in areas that's infested with this tick. Uh, it, the infestation is beyond imagination. With a, a five minutes walking into infested area, you might end up walking out of that area with several hundred ticks attached uh, to, you, to you. So that, that is a major, major problem. We don't really know the impact of this tick on wildlife yet, but we know that it is having a major impact on livestock uh, in the United States, and, and the worst has yet to come. A rather sobering warning on this Friday morning, but I just want to add a note for you that you can also find tips for avoiding ticks on our website at ctpublic.org slash where we live, where Dr. Molai spoke with our reporter, Michaela Savid. Uh, Jenny, can you respond to these concerns and speak to the threats that ticks pose to wildlife? We, we share many of the same concerns that the doctor just mentioned. You know, tick loads on wildlife species can have negative impacts on their ability to survive. You know, if you're a small mammal that's host to some of the nymphal and larval stages of the ticks, you can have phenomenal infestations that can actually 
start impacting your health, um, not just because of the diseases that they can transmit, but because of the loss of blood for, you know, certain animals. To our north, that's been a tremendous concern for moose populations and particularly young moose that get tremendous tick infestations during the course of the winter months. So we are watching that for a lot of different wildlife species. And it's something that we do continue to monitor. You know, the other types of tick-borne illnesses that we sometimes see with, say, our, our dogs, for example, whether it's anaplasmosis or something like that, they can have similar impacts in species like coyotes. So those are some kinds of things that we do, we do watch for. And it can be, you know, a tremendous challenge not just because it can have impacts to wildlife health, but because wildlife are mobile on the landscape. So they also are sometimes moving ticks from one place to another, and that can increase the spread of some of the newer ticks that we're seeing show up in Connecticut. So we got a minute left, but I want to ask, you know, warmer weather is also priming our coast for stronger storms. What are your concerns about animals, how animals are braving these storms? That can be a real challenge for some of the animals that rely on our coastal beaches and our offshore islands. Our barrier islands do exactly what they're supposed to do and help mitigate the intensity of storms to our coastline. But if you're a species that needs to nest on those islands, that can have some dramatic impacts in terms of reducing the habitat you need to nest in. So it all depends on you know what kind of storm and when it hits, but that can have a major impact on everything from, you know, oyster catchers to herons and egrets to piping plovers. Just then, the note for you all that Connecticut Public's documentary, Climate Change Along Connecticut's Coast, explores the threat of storms and sea level rise. You can check that out at ctpublic.org slash cutline. Jenny Dixon is the Wildlife Division Director for the Department of Energy and Environmental Protection. Thank you so much for your time this morning. Oh, it's my pleasure. I'm Catherine Shen. Today's show is produced by Katie Pellico. Our technical producer is Kat Pastor. Download Where We Live anytime on your favorite podcast app. And thank you so much for listening.